Today's guest on the podcast is Drew Wolgamuth. Drew is the co-founder of Wove. Wove is on a mission to deliver the world's best engagement ring shopping experience. Andrew is also a West Point graduate and a former Army Ranger. On today's episode, we talked about three key topics. How being an Army Ranger prepared him to be an entrepreneur. The importance of building community both internally in your company, but also among your customer base. And how they started as a niche business and expanded to a much broader audience over time. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Drew, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, absolutely, Darren. Excited to be here. So take me back in time. Obviously, you've got an incredibly rich tapestry of a background, West Point, Army Rangers, now running a successful startup. It's like, what were you interested in back as a kid? What was little Drew like? I don't know, actually, why I transitioned to jewelry. I mean, my parents were in the jewelry industry growing up. Uh, they were young entrepreneurs themselves. And so I kind of think seeing my parents struggle and work hard you know, to start their own small brick and mortar jewelry company definitely sparked an interest in me. But yeah, up until I was like in high school, just always wanted to be in the army. That was kind of plan A. Never thought I would find myself coming back to the industry. But yeah, it's been an interesting transition. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably have a perception of West Point of making your bed every day, marching out in the snow and wind and rain and 5 a.m. Like, tell me, like, what was West Point like for you? Oh, man, I, I loved West Point. The second half of West Point, year one, was absolutely a struggle for me. Um, debated leaving multiple times. I think for any you know high school kid going into college, all of a sudden, you're thrown in this new environment. You miss home. Initially, uh, it went terribly. I would say kind of the turning point for me, the academic year at West Point is, you know, it's very focused around being a good cadet, being a good student. And so I hated all of those things. But getting to the summers where you get to do military training, you know, interact with real military units, meet NCOs. That experience for me was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want. This is uh, why I signed up to be here. So I loved the Army. I would not say I loved being a cadet. What's like being a cadet just uh, for the non-military audience here? Yeah, uh, you're busy. So I was a, I rode crew at West Point. That was my sport. Um, every cadet is required to, to be an athlete in some capacity, whether you're an NCAA D1 athlete or you're on an intercollegiate team like me or whether you participate in club sports. Uh, so for me, like typical day, woke up at 4.30, made my bed, had to be at the crew house by 5. I would do morning crew practice 5 to about 6.30, grab breakfast, be in class by 8.39. Um, and then really you're in class till around 4, head back to the crew house, do evening practice, evening workout, and then basically get dinner, study, and trying to go to bed around 11 most nights. Uh, so I would say busy. Uh, you never really stop moving. You do a lot of kind of military training mixed in there. And then really like the summers to me were kind of like that, really like some of the most incredible times. They, they have all sorts of different military training exercises kind of built into the military curriculum. You know, I got to go to airborne school as a cadet, which was really neat. Um, you do a lot of training with your class at West Point in the summers, doing ruck marches, jumping out of airplanes, uh, you know, shooting, 
And it's really kind of a cool time to bond with your classmates. But yeah, I mean, overwhelmingly, you're just busy. Uh, you never really stop moving. So what's the next step for you? So how do you go from West Point to the Army Rangers? Yeah, post-graduation, I commissioned as an infantry officer. There's dozens of different branches within the Army that, that you can transition to. For me, I was like, if I'm going to be in the Army, I want to do Army things. And so kind of my picture of the Army up until that point was watching like Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan. That's what got me really excited about the Army. And so I was excited to join the infantry. So essentially, about a month after graduation, went down to Fort Benning, did Ranger School, did Infantry Officer Basic Course, and then was assigned to my unit, which my first unit out of training was Fort Carson, Colorado. It was at uh, 4th Infantry Division, had the opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan, uh, to Helmand Province, about about two or three weeks after showing up. So I uh, vividly remember like stepping off the plane. Um, I was meeting my uh, unit late after they had deployed. So they'd already been in country about two months and felt like this fresh out of college kid taking over a platoon in the combat environment, which was incredibly humbling, incredibly daunting. And, you know, learned a ton of lessons along the way about just humility and leadership as well. But loved my time in the Army. After that deployment, came back to Fort Carson, um, had the opportunity then after my platoon leader time to assess for the 75th Ranger Regiment. And so after trying out and being fortunate enough to be selected, transitioned to Tacoma, Washington and joined the 2nd Ranger Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment. And uh, that for me was was really a highlight in my military career. Um, I was only there for about two and a half years. Absolutely loved every moment of it. Was incredibly impressed just by the caliber of, of Ranger NCOs and Ranger officers that I met there. Just incredible people. Did a, a couple of deployments with them. And then unfortunately was in a, a pretty serious career ending accident that led to me getting out. So much you mentioned there. I'd love just to rewind a little bit and uh, definitely want to touch on the, the accident. Obviously, that's, uh, I know you talked about that off camera and how horrific that was. But like, what was that like for you, just that first deployment in terms of you just go from training and I'm sure, I'm sure tons of exercises. Now you're off the plane in country, leading a team. People are in harm's way, including your own. Like, What, what was that experience like? Because I think the first time someone does something and just like, what was that like for you? What, what was the experience like? How did you get yourself ready for that? It's so funny. If I could go back, I think that there's one lesson that, that I learned was just a massive dose of humility. I had done pretty well at West Point. I had done you know, pretty well in my infantry training, which essentially just consists of like being in good shape. Like if you're in good shape, that's like 80% of the battle in infantry. And so I remember just kind of getting off the plane amped to be there. I had like long hair, had just come out of infantry school, was like, you know, thought I was like, you know, this, this high performer. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into a platoon and you realize, oh man, I know nothing. Like this is a completely different ball game. You know, all this platoon had been in combat for three months when I showed up. And I think just the, uh, you know, getting a healthy dose of, of humility from the other leaders that I was there working with was, was really healthy for me to take a step back and say, hey, you always kind of hear as a platoon leader when you show up, like sit back the first three weeks to a month and just digest, take it in. Don't make massive changes. You know, get to know the, the, the soldiers that you're serving with. And that was like an amazing time, but also just a time of significant learning and, and recognizing that coming in kind of as fresh meat to this unit 
it was so important just to earn people's trust, right? And to to get to know the men that I was was working with. Yeah, I mean, so many lessons there, just like sitting and listening. And I've seen in the business world, people come in and do that and actually take time to actually get to know the team, get to know the company. But what else did you do? Obviously, that that show is massive humility right there. But how did you go about actually earning the credibility of the team there? Because they had been on the ground for three months before you came in. Yeah, I think one of the best ways um, that you can sh- gain credibility is, um, you know, if you don't have to tell people you're special, they'll see it, right? And so I think by showing up, you know, being in good shape, showing that I was listening to my my senior NCOs and my squad leaders, and just having the willingness to sit down and be like, hey, I'm here, train me, tell me about your experiences, what do I need to know? By asking questions and being a good listener, you instantly gain people's respect. You know, you never want to be the officer or the leader that comes in and just immediately starts talking or starts barking orders, showing that you have a real interest in what someone has to say or learning about their experiences. To me, I think that allowed me to kind of quickly build a bond with this platoon. And really, I can remember um, showed up and within about six days, we were running operations and, and day 10 of that deployment, day 10 in country, we got into our first firefight. You know, it was, was really the first time that I had seen combat and I had no idea that it was going to hit that quick, but kind of just, you know, to kind of, uh, boil down the point that I'm making, I think relying on those that have been there that have had those experiences was really critical. Um, I leaned so heavily on my, my platoon sergeant to kind of guide me and lead me while also like maintaining confidence and, and, uh, not being a pushover either. It's kind of like balancing that fine line. Fast forward then to to leaving the military. Like, tell me about that that transition and what that was like for you. So I had transitioned to the Ranger Regiment about a year later. Ranger Regiment is essentially, you know, it's it's like the infantry, but you have uh, a little bit more experience, a little bit more funding. You're going on a little bit higher stakes missions. It's a special operations unit. And so, you know, wasn't planning on leaving the military. I loved the Ranger Regiment. Would have loved to have had a, a career there. I could have. Again, and that goes back just to the respect of, of the high caliber of individual that I met there. Uh, they certainly made me a better, a better person. But um, during what would have been my next deployment to Afghanistan, we were doing some final training before deploying and was doing a nighttime stress shoot, which for the listeners, what that means is you're essentially kitted up in your combat gear. You're running through a scenario uh, this one happened to be at night, and you're shooting targets in sync with your team with live ammunition. And I was running behind one of my teams, kind of helping to assess and evaluate some of the junior leaders, and fell into a seven-foot uh, cement culvert. Broke my neck, my jaw, knocked out all my front teeth. It was kind of like a an experience that kind of just flipped my whole life on its head. I had been dating my my now wife three weeks at the time, and so... Three weeks into dating, I still hadn't met most of her family and friends. All of a sudden, you know, was in a neck brace with no teeth. And so there was just so many aspects of this transition that, that kind of affected every aspect of my life. So professionally, um, relationally, it changed the way that I viewed myself getting out of the military because I no longer identified necessarily as a ranger. And so that event was, was pretty critical, um, in kind of, uh, expediting that transition from the military. Yeah. So tell me about that. I mean, I think that's interesting that the whole identity piece, I think so many people can relate to that, not just ex-military people, but 
even people retire or leave a company, they lose a, a lot of that identity. And like, how did you go about creating that, that new identity for yourself? And then also just, I'd love to hear how the, what the genesis of the business is. Yeah. I, so I think for me, the biggest thing, um, you know, for 10 years had been the army had always wanted to be a ranger. I just viewed myself that way had fully, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid as they would say in the army and fully embraced the culture. Um, and so recognizing that I was going to be transitioning out, I think it made me take a step back and think, you know, who am I? Like, what's important to me? And diving into a startup, I think actually was one of the healthiest things that I could have done. It gave me something to put my head down and grind on. You know, I, I still, I would say I still had a difficult transition. Even after starting the company, you know, there were certainly days and weeks where I second guessed it all the time. But the fact that I got to start this company with, with a fellow ranger, a buddy of mine that I knew from West Point, you know, that was incredibly helpful. Finding community uh, within the military ecosystem was great. There's a ton of great military VCs, founders, incubators that, that I participated in on my way out of the army that ultimately helped us get the business off the ground. But just really quick to kind of give you a backstory of the company, we actually started this original idea while I was in the Ranger Regiment and deployed. So like I said, my family grew up in the jewelry industry. So I kind of had that background. And just naturally, people in my unit that knew this, that wanted to get engaged would come to me and be like, Hey, Drew, can you help me figure out how to get an engagement ring? And most people do this. They kind of go to the jeweler that they know and trust. And so for me, I got to be that for my rangers. And while we were deployed to Afghanistan, the problem became, you know, how do I get an engagement ring overseas so that when I get back, I can step off the plane and propose? And so basically what we started doing is building realistic replica rings that soldiers designed with my family's business and shipping those replicas overseas so that guys could essentially get these rings um, at low cost, at low risk, get back to the United States, propose. And then once they were ready, we'd build them the real thing. And so kind of through that experience and then coming back in the midst of COVID, uh, when jewelry stores were closed down, I had a lot of friends and family that wanted the same experience. And then finally, kind of the light bulb moment for me was when jewelry stores opened to back up and we were still getting requests through friends and family that had heard around the, the, the U.S. that, hey, we might actually have a business idea here. And so that's kind of what sparked the initial idea and led me down the road post-Ranger Regiment. Tell me more, like what was next in terms of you've got a, not a probably particularly scalable business in terms of creating these replica rings and sending them over overseas and then coming back to the U.S. and actually buying the the real thing for people. Like, like what were some of the, the struggles? Like, it, Tell me about the hamster wheel that was going on behind the scenes in terms of making this business happen. Yeah, initially, I did not think this would be a scalable business. Um, you know, jewelry, a lot of times when it's custom is handmade. And so, you know, when you think of venture backed or venture backable and scalable businesses, you don't typically think of, you know, custom made CPG good companies. And so for me, I think really what allowed me to kind of iterate around this idea and say, hey, can we make this scalable? really kind of happened in those early stages where we were looking at what are some different manufacturing techniques that we can do. The 3D printing had just kind of come on the scene in a way where it was being applied to the jewelry industry. And so really, that was the kind of the breakthrough in technology that made what we were doing scalable. 
from a manufacturing perspective. But for me, like for my own education, I think really the breakthrough for me in entrepreneurship was on the way out of the army. There's an organization called the Commit Foundation, and I was fortunate enough to be selected as a Johnny Mac scholar to attend the Stanford GSB's summer crash course in entrepreneurship program called Ignite. And for those that don't know, it's essentially a four-week program. They take people like me with very little entrepreneurship exposure, you know, get, get you in touch with Stanford professors. You can pitch a venture idea, build a business plan. And that summer, I was able to take that idea to the program, really develop it, and then launch the business shortly after. And, and there was obviously so many unknowns. Like at the time, I didn't even know I would launch the business. I was applying to MBA programs, had gotten accepted to a few that I was excited about. And really about two weeks before school was supposed to start, we raised our pre-seed round of funding. Uh, and really from there, we're kind of off to the races. But definitely a ton of uncertainty in the beginning. But the Stanford Ignite program, I would say, gave me the, gave me the confidence to kind of take that next step, leave a job and kind of go for it. I always think it's interesting in any entrepreneur's journey, there just seems like there's a moment, right? Like you talk about applying to MBA programs, potentially re-enlisting in the military. I'm sure you had a number of options at that time. Was there a specific moment where you realized this is really a thing and this is, I'm going to make full commitment to move forward? I think coming back from that deployment and seeing that people stateside wanted this experience for me, gave me the confidence. Like if I have clients that are actually interested in what I'm building, like there's a business that exists behind it. And so I think for that, it was actually the demand that led me to have the confidence to pursue building it. Tell me about just the money raising process. And I think just you talk about humility and in my experience and working with a lot of veterans and humility is just one of the values that really is front and center. What was that like for you as someone who is just grounded in humility and going to have to pitch VCs, pitch investors where it really requires more bravado and less humility. Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, it is so funny. Um, we're like not good at talking about ourselves as veterans. It took me a long time to get used to that. Even today, like making content videos for Wove, where they want to spotlight the founder, it's really uncomfortable for me to talk about it. But you have to be able to sell your business. Um, and one of my investors told me very early on, they say, Drew, if you don't sell your company and your product, who else will? I think learning that was really important. I remember being incredibly discouraged in the fundraising process, especially for our pre-seed round. Um, we went out, we pitched probably about 80 different investors between different VCs, family offices, angel investors. We're continuously getting no's. And at some point, we're fortunate enough to get a lead investor. And it kind of has this feeling of, you know, once it rains, it pours. Once we had that lead investor, we found that it was fairly easy to get follow-on investment. But initially, it's such a painstaking process. Uh, for the first 50 people that we pitched, we probably had close to 45 no's. And then they would do the five that did move on would do some form of due diligence and maybe only one or two would give you the ability to do a follow-on pitch or meet the partners at the firm. So I think if you're going into this process as a vet, one, get used to talking about yourself and selling yourself. And two, have persistence. Don't stop believing in your idea because you get 45 out of 50 no's and people that think that your business isn't venture-backable or not buildable. Yeah, I was going to say is how do you persevere with all those no's? You know, five out of 50 move forward. 
that's a heck of a lot of no's. I know for me, just not being a natural salesperson, that's, you know, yet one no, people can tuck tail and just say, oh, this isn't going to work. Like, how did you, how did you keep that faith, keep that belief in the idea? So I think having a, having a great co-founder was critical. If you're a solo founder, there's nothing more lonely in the world. And I think finding a good co-founder that will, or co-founders that will stand with you, support you, kind of walk the whole the whole trail with you is, is really critical. Um, and then also finding good mentors. I think I had known going into this process just through having mentors in VC that you got to be prepared to have a lot of no's. And so knowing that upfront, I think kind of changes the lens in which you viewed the entire process. But ultimately, just find a support system, whether it's mentors, a co-founder, don't go at it alone. I think it's, it's a really difficult journey as is. Choose great people to go at it with you. Mentor of mine talks about locking arms and moving forward and really staying committed to, to the path and to your values and to ultimately what your outcome is. So, so that sounds like a similar experience for you guys in terms of just staying bonded, staying connected and really leaning on each other. And I think too, like exactly, like having a no, it feels like a setback, right? But if you think about it, you're in the exact same place you were before the no as you are after the no, like there's no change. And so the more no's that you can accumulate and discover why people are saying no, the more that you can tailor your pitch deck, tailor your presentation to ultimately try to seek out those yeses. But yeah, I mean, I guess you could look at it as just like data points, right? I mean, it's like as long as you're building in that learning loop of not just just taking a no and just like banging your head against the wall, doing the same thing over and over and over again, but actually adapting and learning and growing. And I think the more data points you can get, the better, right? When I look at our marketing strategy, one of the things that was also very difficult for me, I think other veterans are in the same boat, is spending investor money. It feels incredibly unnatural. You're like, it feels like debt. And so learning to spend investor money was a hard lesson learned for me, but it was critical to our marketing strategy because we were not getting data feedback initially on our user experience and our digital product until we started putting tens of thousands of dollars into digital advertising a month. And at that point, we started to you know, speed up that flywheel, gather more data points, and that led us to make refinements to our marketing strategy fix bugs and alter our digital product and ultimately, you know, refine our customer journey. But I think that's really difficult, you know, learning to spend investor money and continuing to take those no's to find the yeses. So fast forward to today in terms of your business, and you've talked about a digital product, you've mentioned 3D printing, you've talked about using digital marketing to get feedback and validating your idea. Like, what does your business look like today? Like, what's the state of the state of your company, of Wove? So I would say um, it's, it's always difficult. You know, we all think that we re- reach product market fit at different times. I would say we have reached or are very near to reaching product market fit. We have a consistent return on advertising spend. We're generating predictable revenue per dollar that we input into digital advertising. And so for us right now, you know, we're a post-seed company, pre-Series A. We're in the process of scaling to get reach Series A metrics. One of the things I found early on as a founder is that your role at a company feels like it changes every three to six months if you're growing. Um, and so being able to like constantly adapt, reevaluate your KPIs, what metrics are you trying to solve for was really important to being able to iterate quickly. But for us, where we're at today, I would say uh, we're at product market fit, always refining product market fit. But, you know, looking to scale towards hopefully a Series A raise end of this year. Um, and the other thing I would say, too, you know, 
a lot of things have changed for founders. Um, I remember when we first launched Wove, it was all focused on growth. And our VCs came back to us, you know, about a year ago and they're like, hey guys, like maybe it starts time, it's it's time to start thinking about unit economics and hitting profitability. You know, maybe that's what's going to get you to survive, you know, a downturn economy. And you can come out the other end and think about growth then. But I think, you know, continuously kind of reevaluating re uh, your operating environment, you know, it's a principle that they teach in the army as well to be able to make informed decisions for your company is so important. Um, and it's something that, you know, we are constantly doing uh, today at Wove. So initially you'd obviously targeted an audience you know quite well in terms of people who are deployed and, and wanting to have that that engagement ring experience. How have you gone about just expanding into obviously a much bigger market that maybe you're not as familiar with? Like, how have you gone about learning about that market and really developing that brand over time? So I think, you know, boiling that down to the most basic level for myself, what made us successful early on was a deep understanding of the customer journey. And coming from a jewelry family, even having grown up in the business, I really knew like nothing about jewelry. But the one thing that I did know was what is the customer journey and what are their pain points? You know, that's great for testing an MVP. But now that we're growing and scaling, I think collecting data on your clients over time is so important. You know, the client that we thought we were going after early on proved to be actually not the client that was best suited for Wove. Um, and so I think by like gathering information, like you're saying, getting data points kind of helps you to kind of consistently reevaluate who is your target customer and where can you find them. Um, and so a couple of ways that we've kind of tested how do we find them is just by testing a broad spectrum of different acquisition channels. So for us, initially, we didn't know what acquisition channels would work. So we tested Google, Facebook, TikTok. You know, we would do things. We even tested like billboards in certain regions where we felt like there wasn't a heavy jewelry presence. Maybe they didn't have a lot of jewelry stores in the area. And by testing a broad spectrum, figuring out the ones that are probably going to be your winners, and then investing more into those winners um, allowed us to kind of narrow it down. I'm a pretty firm believer that, you know, for startups that are, you know, pre 10 million in, in annual revenue, you probably only need two to three different acquisition channels to get there. And then beyond that point, start reaching out. But what I would say is focus on the channels that are that are winning. And, and uh, that's something that, that I learned early on. It took me a while to figure that out, but has been proven to be helpful for us now. So what's next for you guys? Obviously, you talked about Series A metrics. I'd be curious, like for people who don't know what those metrics are, what those are and what you guys are focused on in terms of what's the next hill for you guys to take? It's funny. You know, I kind of, I, it feels like for pre-seed and seed stage funding, if you have a strong team, a strong pitch deck, and there's a market that exists for your product, almost anyone can raise money. Now we're at the stage where those things are still important, but what's really important now is like, what are the actual financials behind this business? Is there a real opportunity here for a, a venture capital firm to come under you and put in serious capital that can have the expectation of you raising a series B, C, you know, and so on. And so for us, a lot of those milestones now are tied to revenue, profit margin, and growth. And so for us, like specifically to, to put like a target on the wall, like, you know, I'm aiming for 5 million in annual revenue, 5 million plus, uh, and 50% or greater profit margins. Um, and I, I have a strong belief that if I can hit that, I can, you know, go out and raise you know, some semblance of a series A. That's interesting just hearing you 
explain your journey. And you're like this seasoned entrepreneur and going back and telling your story about being in high school and going to West Point and rowing and, you know, making your bed at 4.30 in the morning, being deployed, being in the military, transitioning, just so many different changes you've had over your life and your career. Like, what have you learned about yourself just in the last couple of years of, of running a startup and just comparing that to like your life as a, as a military person? Yeah, I think like the values and the principles that you have in the military, a lot of them overlap really nicely with entrepreneurship. I mean, obviously like grit, perseverance, um, but I also think building a community that can support you is so important. That's something you know, you'll hear like the brotherhood or, you know, the sisterhood in the military. Like those are real terms that, you know, they mean community, right? A support system. And I think as an entrepreneur, that was something that was really critical for me. In the military, you're forced to work out every day. When I first got out and was grinding on the startup, I found that like I would skip workouts and I would go like a week without working out. And all of a sudden I started to recognize like, hey, I'm not taking care of myself. Like maybe there's a reason these structures are in place for the military. You know, I need to have better self-care as a founder. So I, I think things like build a strong support system, take care of yourself, re- like rely on your values and principles. Those are things that I've carried with me as, as a founder that have been helpful in so many ways. You talk about community and obviously internally with having a co-founder and investors, and you talked about some of the great coaching and advice you've gotten from those folks. But how do you think about community externally in terms of a community with among customers, just in terms of the external marketplace as a whole? I think if you can build a community within your customer base, you know, that is a major plus, right? And there's different ways that we try to do that. We create blogs, we try to create opportunity for our clients to share viral content of their proposal experiences that are Wove branded. And ultimately, we want to build relationships between our designers and our client base so that they feel comfortable coming back to their designer in the future to maybe build a wedding band or an anniversary gift. And I think kind of like fostering opportunity for those communities to exist can really kind of give your brand a sense of like virality when when it comes to like growing your brand and brand awareness. We're really fortunate that 30% of our sales come from word of mouth referrals. Um, And that's something that I think is due to the fact that we tried to build a community of wove couples that worked with us. I think that's one way to do it. I also think like building a community within your own team, you know, have a culture. It's something that was so pertinent in the military. In the military, I remember um, applying to the Ranger Regiment and one of the sergeant majors was grilling me with questions. And he said, Drew, what's the best unit in the military? And um, I had luckily been kind of prepped for this, uh, this interview and um, knew the answer. But the answer was, you know, the best unit in the military is the one that I'm in. Whatever unit that you're in, take pride in it, uh, embrace that culture. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to the startup culture. Like I, everyone that works at Wove, we truly believe like we are the best jewelry company in the world. We provide an unmatched user experience and we can serve our couples better. And I think building kind of that culture and that community at work is really important as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just the, the power of community. People think about social media, but just you gave such a great example of it, of building it both inside the walls of Wove, but also with customers. So what's next for you guys? Like what's, what's the future for Wove? I know you're working on a series A round, but like, what do you look if you look out say five, 10 years, like what does Wove look like? So I think the big, hairy, audacious goal for Wove is we want to be the lifelong jeweler for the modern consumer. And so we are investing heavily into that engagement ring experience up front. 
for a couple reasons. One, it's typically the first jewelry purchase that a couple will make in their lifetime. It's one of the most expensive, one of the most sentimental. So if we can master that experience, give couples an, an unmatched experience, allow them to really connect with somebody at Wove, typically their designer, you know, we want to be able to serve that, that customer over the course of their lifetime, you know, for anniversary gifts, Christmas, jewelry, things beyond just bridal jewelry. And so for us, our mission right now is create the best engagement ring shopping experience that exists and transition into being the lifelong jeweler for our couples. So one more question for you. So I think about this concept of greatness all the time. And to me, greatness is there's a lot of different definitions, but to me, it's the intersection of purpose and success. Or how would you define greatness for yourself in your life and your career? What does greatness look like for you? Yeah, it's funny. I um, Growing up, I was never like particularly good at one like thing. I wasn't like a star athlete, wasn't super, uh, like especially smart. Um, I worked hard, but... I think the thing that's helped me is being able to surround yourself with really good people, right? Build a team around you. If you don't know something, you can certainly find somebody that does. And so I think, you know, learning to have humility, listen, and build a, build a solid team around yourself has something that's allowed me to be successful in this startup venture. And I think ultimately in the army, it helped me to be successful as well. So where can people go to pick up one of your products or learn more about your business? Yeah. Uh, so our website is wovemade.com. We're also on Instagram at wove underscore made, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, please follow us. Um, you know, we're always looking to get the word out about who we are and what we do and how we can help couples. Um, but yeah, we'd love for anyone to check us out. Awesome. Well, hey, Drew, I know you're a busy guy. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Darren. It's a pleasure. 